0: Hello and welcome once again to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey and if you are new to the podcast, this is a series in which we talk to doctors and health professionals who forge all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. Our guest today is Associate Professor Marie Bismarck, who after studying both medicine and law uh, and combining these interests into a medical, medical, legal and, and research career, more recently, um, took the decision to go back and and retrain, is currently working as a consultant liaison psychiatry registrar with Melbourne Health. She's still continuing to juggle this with her decorated research career and is leading a research team at the University of Melbourne, which in June of this year received a million dollars in NHMRC investigator grant funding to study why health practitioners in Australia have higher rates of burnout, depression and suicide than other occupations. The project will consider a range of pressures on clinicians, including extended work hours, uh, misunderstandings around mandatory reporting, which we get into in this conversation, and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, which, of course, is a huge factor that will need to be examined. As you'll hear in this conversation, Marie hopes that this work will identify new ways to to better support doctors and allow them to thrive in their professions. And given what a huge issue this is, for doctors we talk extensively about what's driving this project and its origins before we get to that chat just a quick reminder that the ccim conference which was scheduled to be happening in june has of course been postponed it's now happening on the 12th and 13th of december at the Novotel sydney brighton beach if you've not already registered you can do so by heading over to creativecareersinmedicine.com follow the links to the events page while you're there if you've not already as well you can become a member you can register for that uh, follow the links from the homepage, read about the amazing member benefits you can secure, including discounted member fees if you bundle that membership with your CCIM 2020 conference ticket. Again, that's all at creativecareersinmedicine.com. Follow the links. So. On to our interview with Marie Bismarck and a quick note that I was very excited, as you'll hear in a few moments, to have a co-host for this episode, CCIM founder and senior GP Dr. Amandeep Hansra, who anyone involved with CCIM would be very familiar with. It made for a really interesting chat in which Marie um, opened up uh, about some of her own struggles working as a doctor and managing her own mental health issues along the way and how she hopes that her experiences um, can assist others. So on that note, I'll stop waffling and let's just dive in. Hi, Marie, and welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to be here.
0: No worries. Now, today, I'm, I'm very excited uh, for the first time on the CCOM podcast. I have a co-host here sitting with me, and I've got, I'm here with Sydney GP and Creative Careers in Medicine founder, uh, Dr. Amandeep Hanthro, who I'm sure anyone listening will be pretty familiar with. Amandeep, thanks for making the time to be part of it today. It's wonderful to, to have you a part of the podcast as well.
2: Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to see you at work and um, it's actually exciting for me to, um, to, to be on this one with Marie as well. I've been watching her in awe of all the amazing things she achieved so I'm looking forward to talking to her a little bit more today.
0: Well, let's get started talking about some of those things. One of the ones things, Marie, that I was um, really fascinated in, in looking at the work that you've done and, and the research that you've completed in the past... It's so hard to know where to start, but since it's still relatively fresh and and no doubt pretty exciting for you and your team, um, perhaps we can talk a little about the uh, NHMRC grant for the work that you and your team at the University of Melbourne are going to be doing or have perhaps already begun uh, by now, um, examining factors that lead to doctors having far higher rates of burnout, depression and suicide than, than other professions potentially and, and more importantly and conversely, what factors allow them to thrive and what kind of things that can, we can be identified to sort of um, change that, 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 that some of those numbers. Um, anyone familiar with the previous work know this is a, a particularly interest area for you. How did this project come about? Um, because the potential really is exciting.
1: Thank you. We're delighted to have been awarded an NHMRC grant uh, for the next five years. So my research career has mostly focused on um, patient experience. I've been around 15 years looking at patient complaints and medical malpractice claims and really trying to understand how we can provide better care to patients. And As I did this work, so often it would come back to the providers who were providing the care and the extent to which they were being supported by their organisation to provide good care. And I started to realise that we can't actually provide good care for our patients unless we're also caring for the health practitioners in our healthcare system. Sure. So um, the research project over the next Five years, uh, we'll have a few different lenses. So um, we're really interested in the circumstances where things go well. So we're doing a project on compassionate leadership at the moment, talking to recent graduates about the kind of environments that help them to thrive yeah. in their clinical practice. And then we're also looking at situations where things don't go so well. So working with ARTPRESS to analyse notifications of health impairments that have been made about health practitioners.
0: Can you sort of help explain how this, this kind of work will help identify the kinds of initiatives and in- interventions that, that can make a positive difference in this area? Like, um, Obviously, there, this is, this is a, a new area. There's a lot that's, that's always been done to try and to improve things, and but we still see recent cases like that of um, Yumiko Kodota, who... Her case, which really highlighted the importance of getting the, the work, some of the workplace settings especially, um, and, and workplace cultures right. But there's obviously a range of other factors and barriers around um, doctors' mental health particularly. It um, mm. uh, there, there requires a lot of vigilance and consideration. What, what kinds of real changes can this kind of research deliver for, for those doctors who may be at risk? So I
1: think one thing that our research does is it helps to really clearly identify risk. Which can lead to policy change. Um, So, for example, some of our earlier research found that female doctors are twice as likely to die by suicide as women in other health. um, As women in other occupations. Mm. So, um, yeah, if you're if you're a doctor, you're twice as likely to die by suicide as a woman working in another occupation. Um, And I think just having that kind of data can be really helpful for the colleges and professional associations and employers in making the case that it is really important to invest in the health of health practitioners. Um, We've done a bit of work looking at um, perpetrators of sexual misconduct in the health profession. So Mm. we've got a recent paper that's just come out. um, And again, I think bullying and harassment can certainly contribute to a very negative workplace culture. So it's helpful for us uh, to be able to quantify some of those risk factors. And then also thinking about potential interventions. So one of my PhD colleagues, Owen Bradfield, um, is looking at risk factors for medico-legal concerns and has found that being in an isolated practice is a risk factor. And so then once you understand... That working on your own without the support of peers is a risk factor for falling into medico legal problems. We can then begin to think about how we can connect practitioners with peers and mentors and groups of supportive colleagues.
0: So they are felt getting that support around them. I'm going to get you.
2: Yeah, so Marie, I was just wondering when you put this research proposal together, I'm, I'm assuming this was pre COVID. Um, is, mm. is there anything that's going to change with your research, um, considering what's happened over the last six months? Because as you've probably seen, you know, anecdotally, and and there may be some some numbers starting to come out around sort of burnout and the the effect of the pandemic on our on our healthcare professionals. Mm. Um, you know, what what sort of um, consideration um, are you putting towards that COVID impact? Yeah, it's a,
1: a great question, Amanda. And as you say, when we wrote the research. Proposal. We had no idea what 2020 would deliver to us, um, and actually, the timing has been amazing for thinking deeply about health practitioner wellbeing. So, because we will have longitudinal data, so um, our data set from APRA covers all 700,000 registered health practitioners in Australia, and we'll have data from before, during, and after the pandemic. Um, We're hoping to be able to do some comparative analyses and really look at that as longitudinal cohort data that covers the pandemic. Some of our interviews on compassionate leadership, which have started already, were taking place during the pandemic. Um, And I think that additional stress that people were placed under has shone a much brighter light on the kinds of leadership styles that are supportive in the health system.
2: Yeah, so, so fantastic timing, I guess, in some ways. I mean, not that we wish for this pandemic to occur, but a uh, good timing for the research yeah. to be happening at the same time.
1: Mm, I think so.
2: You've,
0: you've had a long focus on research into doctor's health prior to this project um that we're just talking about your your award-winning work was examining complaint patterns against doctors and how they might lead to more proactive interventions and um rather than you know, the reactive solutions um how what's sort of drawn you to this particular field
1: oh gosh that's a a really great question i think um so often with creative careers in medicine there's quite a large degree of serendipity involved so um, after I finished my law degree I was really interested in working in the human rights or patient rights space and I had the good fortune of being off the role as a legal advisor with Professor Ron Patterson who was the New Zealand Health Complaints Commissioner right. um, and Ron has ended up being a wonderful colleague and mentor for the last 20 years for me and so I think that where I really began to think about um, the quality and safety of care that we deliver and how that interfaces with the way that we care for health practitioners.
0: I know you've most recently sort of switched fields again and you're working as a psychiatry registrar now, and we want to talk about that in a a moment. But first, I wanted to talk about your experience. As you just mentioned, um, as well as having a medical degree, you you completed your law degree. Um, I want to talk about that crossover more generally and what attracted you to that, Sort of side of things um, was yeah. was law always the, the the goal when you were studying medicine, or was it um, something that sort of happened sort of organically and blossom? What you know, the, your, your interest expanded once you were there.
1: So when I finished high school, um, I was really interested in both law and medicine and couldn't choose between them. So I somewhat naively enrolled in both um, at the University of Otago and thought that within three or four weeks it would become apparent which degree I enjoyed more. (laughs) Oh, and here I am uh, 20-something years later and I still haven't made up my mind and still haven't been able to choose between them. So, um, yeah, I I completed the two degrees concurrently um, and have just woven backwards and forwards between law and medicine for my whole career since then. And the work is now some integrated that some days I can't even tell whether I'm wearing my doctor hat or my lawyer hat <laughs> anymore. It's so woven together now.
2: Yeah. Well oh, that that that's so interesting because we have spoken to um, some of the CCIM community who have done medicine and law and they've kept some some of them have sort of described keeping their careers quite separate and some days they sort of do their medical work and some days their legal work. But yeah. it's interesting that you um you've you've taken roles um that kind of combine both of those hats, and hmm. you you've tried to sort of pave quite a unique path there. So I think that's um, it's really intriguing. Yeah,
1: and I I think particularly with the governance work that I do, that when I'm in those leadership roles on a board of directors, that bringing both the legal expertise plus also this really frontline understanding of how health systems work is is very helpful at a board level. Hmm. So. At the moment, I'm on three main boards. So Somerset Aged Care, which is an ASX-listed company, um, the board of the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, and GMHBA Health Insurance. And I think in those governance roles, that breadth of understanding and the ability to weave backwards and forwards and to speak the language of clinicians, but also to have a deep understanding of those legal issues is very helpful
0: how long, did, was it easy, you, you, you just mentioned a moment ago how sort of you they all seem to be so intertwined that it seems quite a natural way for you to be working, was that always the case or did you was it tricky to find that balance early on, did you find yourself sort of trying to keep a whole lot of plates spinning all at once and sort of how, how are you going to keep up or was it always kind of like because, because you'd had that sort of, you, you'd already gone through that experience I guess of doing both degrees at the same time, was it always sort of combined in your head?
1: Yeah, I think so, um, and I spent quite a long time out of clinical medicine, so I did my public health physician training, um, and certainly public health is one of the broader and more welcoming colleges, and I think there's a lot of scope to do very, very, very varied work as a public health registrar. So certainly while I was doing my public health training, it was very easy to integrate the two. Um with my psychiatry training, which I'm doing now, the earlier years of the psychiatry training are more prescribed. And I guess, right. um, you know, for a while there was a, a clearer differentiation between my my clinical work when I was very much wearing my medical hat, and then on other days I would go to Melbourne Law School and, and be teaching mm. law. But I think, you know, as I'm getting further through my psychiatry training, as you get into your advanced training um, there is more scope to shape the nature of the training program around your own interests. And I find myself kind of falling into, um, you know, the legal aspects of the work more often. So uh, unlike many other psychiatry registrars, I, I really enjoy writing tribunal reports and presenting. <laughs> I'm
2: um, sure that your colleagues love you. Right? <laughs> they give you all the report yeah. work to do.
1: Um, yeah, so I, I often end up, you know, doing doing more of the report writing and more of the tribunal work, just because I I really um, enjoy it. But I do sometimes have to convince the tribunal that I'm actually the junior doctor and not the legal
2: aid lawyer when i go to those hearings yeah so just interesting that you mentioned that about being a junior doctor um we often get people coming to us wanting to change career paths um quite far on into their sort of career journey um and changing specialties and one of the questions that comes up is you know the, the idea of going back to be being a junior doctor and starting a whole sort of training process again and what that's like, you know, being around peers that mm. are potentially younger than you, you already being, having a fellowship in another specialty area. I mean, can you talk us a bit through about, you know, what, what was that like when you first sort of went back oh. to day one as a psychiatry registrar? Yeah,
1: it's been a really joyful experience, actually. So I was in my mid-40s um, when I started my psychiatry training as a as a first-year registrar. Um, and it's been a really delightful experience. You know, I know that I'm in the training program because I really want to be there. Um, it's lovely uh, working closely and being in a study group with um, registrars who are much younger than me and in a different stage of life and celebrating their engagements and their pregnancies and their first babies when... You know, I'm at a stage of life where my children are, are leaving home. Um, and I think with my quality and safety hat on, I kind of feel like I'm sometimes there undercover. Um, you know, <laughs> it's really interesting to see the impact of hospital hierarchies and to feel how disempowering it can be at times to be a junior doctor. Mm. Um I think with my quality and safety work, it really keeps my feet very firmly on the ground to be working as a junior registrar um, and to, you know, really experience um, what some of those rosters and hours and hierarchical systems are like from that position as a junior doctor. And then I hope that I then, you know, translate that over into some of my research and leadership work.
0: Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. I mean, how because it seems quite a rare thing that that someone would have those kinds of insights that you that you have. I mean, how is that something you you'd be hoping, obviously, to for that very much to be informing the work you're doing at the moment with the with the research project we were talking about before?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it certainly does make me a better researcher. To um, you know, be on the on call weekend roster and turning up to the hospital at 2am to, um, to do an admission and to see the ways in which we can provide great care but also to see the times when um, patients don't receive the care that they deserve.
0: One, switching gears a little bit, one of the topics that you've spoken about publicly um, in the past has been your own experiences um, around, around anxiety especially. Um, You've been able to to process those experiences and turn them into very powerful, um, you know, those perspectives and experiences into very powerful messages and and hopefully um, help other doctors who might be struggling as well. Um, you yeah. not only helping but encouraging others to seek help um, and highlighting how vital, um, you know, doctors' um, health is and, and you've talked about this, this idea of empathic observation. Um, one of the things you, talk, you, you, you used that term earlier, um, compassionate leadership as well, which I guess ties very much into that. You made a, um, yeah. a particularly powerful and, and raw... I should say, presentation at an RACP conference a couple of years back now on some of these issues. There was one particular anecdote that's, that quite that struck me It referenced, there was one day where you, where you got to the office and you, you baked a cake um, for your colleagues and, and that led to one of them realising that how much stress that, that you are under at the time and, and you know, as yeah. a result, someone was able to reach out to you, um, and, you know, as, a, as a great, a really great example of that, you know, empathic care or, or observation. I'm just wondering how, yeah. your, how your own personal experiences have, have informed your understanding of, of these particular issues. Yeah,
1: thank you. That's a, a, a lovely anecdote to remember. And certainly one of the ways that I, I know when my mood is dipping is when I develop this early morning, Waking, and when I am awake at um, <laughs> at four AM, I tend to bake. So Aww. whenever I'm turning up at work with a lot of baked goods, it generally means that um that my sleep's not great, and that I've been waking very early in the morning. And, and this one colleague left a, a note on my chocolate cake saying, "This chocolate cake is so great that I'm worried about your mental health," <laughs> um, <laughs> which was was yeah. really lovely. Um, look, I I felt. That it's important to do some myth busting. I think that when the mandatory reporting laws came in, there was a lot of fear and misunderstanding mm. around them, and there was this myth circulating that it was no longer to seek safe to seek help for mental health concerns, yeah. and that you would be reported to APRA. Um, and because I had been doing research on on a media, on mandatory reporting and had reviewed over eight hundred mandatory reports. To Oprah, I knew that that simply wasn't the case and you know at the time um, I was experiencing some anxiety and depression I was seeing my GP regularly for that and I think I felt a real responsibility to be able to communicate that message that actually um, it is safe um, to, to seek help for your own mental health issues and Indeed we should all be doing that, we should all have our own GP, um, we should all be reaching out when we're struggling and that the threshold for mandatory reporting is very much linked to a, a risk to patients and that as long as you're seeking treatment and taking sick leave um, when you need to take sick leave and um, have the support and engaged in, in treatment that means that you're able to practice safely, that actually that's doesn't warrant a mandatory report to to APRA. Um, So I hope that by being able to speak both about my own personal experience but also sharing some of the research I've done in that area, I've been able to reassure some other doctors that we all should have our own GP and that it is okay, and that most of us at some point in our career will struggle um, and that we're, we're better doctors. Um, if we're able to seek help and support
2: with that. I've been noticing, Marie, that there's a lot of um, high-profile doctors that have come out and openly discussed, you know, some of their own struggles with mental illness. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, people, amazing people like Jeff Toogood from Crazy Socks for Docs Mm. and there's been other people in the media. I mean, I'm just wondering, do you feel that there is more acceptance now by the medical community that... We, we are all allowed to experience our own you know, mental health battles and that doesn't make us a bad doctor and that we can still go on and, and practice safely You know, if we're getting help. Do you feel like there has been a shift or do you feel like we've still got a really long way to go? Look, I
1: think things are beginning to shift in the right direction. I think it does still vary from workplace to workplace um, and that perhaps some of the colleges are more or less supportive in this area um, and I think that some mental health conditions still remain much more stigmatised than than others. Um, so, for example, I think that um, depression and anxiety are conditions that um, the medical profession can accept more readily than, for example, a condition like bipolar disorder mm-hmm. where there's still much more work to be done to recognise some of the really amazing doctors who are living with... Um, with conditions like bipolar, and still practicing safely and well, but I hope we're going in the right direction.
0: I mean, do you need to. Have, um, <clears throat> one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just following up on that, is how how much of a difference it makes to a doctor who might be struggling, um, if if they know that the person that's actually reaching out to them may have um, experienced something, you know, similar similar lows in the past. I mean, does it um, does it do you need to have experienced the kind of lows that that, that doctors experience in, in order to to properly understand how you can help somebody else, or or <clears throat> is is what I guess um, what's the best advice you can give to someone who, who might be trying to reach out to someone, um, whether they, mm. whether they whether they have experienced it or not, and then also you know how, how confident can can you be in the person that's actually reaching out to you? Mm.
1: Look, I don't think you need to have been through this experience to be able to support. Your colleagues, um, you know, I received wonderfully empathic and, and meaningful support from from all sorts of people. I think it's really about being attuned to your colleagues and noticing the small things. I think that as doctors, we're generally very high performing um, and it takes a lot for the cracks to begin to show it works. So, for example, something like, you know, a doctor turning up 20 minutes late at work In um, other occupations you might not think anything of that but I think it's sometimes some of those more subtle signs um, that make it worth just just checking in whether somebody is okay or not and being, you know, curious and, and open about your colleagues' lives outside of medicine and, you know, sharing the hard days of, as well as the joys of working in medicine, I do think that um, in terms of your, your choice of of GP, that um, there are some GPs who are particularly skilled in working with other doctors, um, and that you know it's, it's important to find a GP who you feel very comfortable with. Right. Yeah. And actually, it can be worth having a very explicit conversation. You know, if you are concerned about APRA reporting, you can certainly have a conversation with your GP and understand what their own threshold would be for considering whether a report might ever be required and, you know, really having a very open conversation that if they were ever concerned that things were getting close to that point where they felt um, that your health issues were beginning to impact on patients here, that they would have that conversation with you um, and support you to um, return to safe practice without the need for a report to a regulator. Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess it's, it's about everyone understanding where, where those boundary lines are and, and, and understanding what the barriers to actually people accessing the care that they need may well be. Yeah, that's right. Amadeep, did you have anything that...
2: No, I was just going to say, it's a really good point, actually, I mean, you know, um, and I think most of us can kind of relate, we've all had times that we've had to reach out and, and get help from colleagues. And I guess, you know, one of the the issues in medicine is that we are quite a small community. And um, aside from things like mandatory reporting, there are also concerns around confidentiality and, you know, um, just concerns about where your your medical records might end up or um, who might be saying Mm. what to who. I mean, how have you sort of traversed that um, over time when you've reached out for help um, in, you know, sort of feeling comfortable that what you're disclosing to people especially now also you're working in that field you know say working in psychiatry um you know has that ever been something that you've sort of come across or other people have raised with you?
1: Yeah look I think you know each of us makes our own assessment about you know who we want to trust with with personal information and there have certainly been times where I've been working in, in jobs where I needed to take a day of leave and I just let my my supervisor and my team know that I wasn't well and that I wouldn't be in at work without them needing to know all of the details about what was happening in my life. Sure. Um, and then I think it can be really helpful to have a supportive group of peers, you know, perhaps from outside your own immediate workplace. So I found that sometimes, you know, some of my study groups are, are enormously supportive or being part of a book club um, full of of non-medical people has been a very tight, a very safe place uh, to both you know, seek support, but also to provide reciprocal support to the other people in that group.
0: Switching gears completely uh, for a moment. Um, one of the other things I was interested to, to ask you about, and it's partly because I noticed you dealing with it this week online, I'm guessing not for the first time, um, is around this issue of the treatment of experts, particularly prominent women, um, by, by most often um, men on social media. Um, this week you, you posted uh, about having been not only sort of patronised and targeted but ultimately abused um, by a pretty scarily ignorant uh, and aggressive guy on the, on the topic of COVID-19. What's, yeah. it, what's it like having to – is this something you're constantly dealing with, But I, I, I get the impression, with this kind of harassment and behaviour? I mean, how do you stay engaged – uh, because as an advocate for public health and doctors' health especially, you clearly are trying yeah. to, to be publicly engaged. How do you how do you stay engaged without letting this kind of stuff get to you?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. And certainly, some of the COVID conspiracy theories yeah. that have been coming out have um have been challenging at times. Um, you know, particularly when somebody without expertise is is trying to tell you that the whole. Pandemic is a setup that's being driven by vaccine companies, Pandemic. or that actually, yeah, or that actually yeah. um, COVID is no more dangerous than the flu, or yeah. that we should just be locking up elderly people and allowing the rest of us to live our lives. You know, it's been challenging responding to that. I think DMA psychiatry training has been really helpful. Um, as a psych trainer, you're often taught to listen to the emotion behind the words. Right. And so rather than becoming too caught up in the details of the particular conspiracy theory you know I really try and understand the emotion that's driving that and I think that often there is a lot of fear or anxiety or a perceived loss of control um, resting behind some of those comments so I think really trying to understand where people are coming from. Um, One of my colleagues Julie Leith does a lot of work around vaccine acceptance and I've learnt an awful lot from her about not trying to be directly confrontational with people who are probably never going to change their mind but rather just you know, gently and consistently role modelling behaviour, just gently and consistently trying to support evidence-based conversations um, Amplifying the voices of people who are most directly affected by some of those public health issues. So, um, you know, in my social media, yeah. I really spend a lot of time trying to hear the voices, for example, of of people living with mental illness or um, minority groups, and really amplifying their voices rather than trying to drive the narrative myself.
0: Because it must be a bit frustrating, though. Because as you, as you mentioned, there is so much online commentary and and conspiracy theories and and disinformation, misinformation of late. You know, one of the one of the things was the the commentary around um, suicide rates being up, um, supposedly, yeah. and that the 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 stats just not bearing that out at all. I mean, is is it frustrating as someone who has done so much work in that space in particular to see you know actual facts like this being debated is if, if they're some kind of matter mm. of opinion that can be sort of won or lost. Yeah,
1: I do feel as though a lot of my career has been spent, has spent trying to do this kind of myth-busting because those myths can be incredibly dangerous. And, you know, there has... There was some modelling work earlier on in this pandemic which suggested that during the lockdown, suicide rates might increase by around 25%. Um, you know, which was was very worrying and I think people's ability to distinguish between models and projected worst case scenarios Mm -hmm. and reality um, you know, was, was difficult and so I think now that we do actually have data from coroners showing that there's been no increase in suicide rates during the lockdown and indeed in a number of countries there's been a reduction in suicide deaths I think I just try and contribute um, an evidence-based perspective to those conversations and sometimes even if I don't think I'm going to change the mind of the person mm. that I'm responding to, I hope that other people may be listening or, or watching um, and might so I be may be able to co- mm. yeah, yeah that's right I think it's the people who are on the fence and, and who are really genuinely trying to understand what's going on um, who may be influenced by some of that information, you know, and that's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about mental health during the, the pandemic I've been working in, a um, you know, both in the emergency department but also in the intensive care unit of the Royal Melbourne Hospital, you know, where I interact with many people who've had suicidal thoughts um, or attempted suicide and and certainly there have been aspects of the pandemic and the lockdown that have contributed to that stress. But I think it's, it's really important that we're able to just, you know, step back and, and try and understand what, what's really happening. Um,
0: in situations like yours, um, professionally, where you've got two very distinct professions crossing over. So I'm talking specifically, perhaps a little bit earlier in your career when, um, with law and medicine, I, I often wonder what crossover there is in terms of skills and mindsets, or whether it's personality traits that can help someone succeed in, in one or the other or both at the same time. Um, other than, obviously, the medical knowledge, I'm... Trying to get to, to, to the point of asking you about what 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 can listeners perhaps take away if if, if they were looking at getting into the medical legal sphere as you have, mm. other than the you know obviously the the medical expertise and knowledge that they that that, that you guys have, um, which is vital. Is yeah. there anything other about doctors that that makes them well suited to to working in the legal professional or associated roles? Mm. Look, what
1: is- the pieces of career advice that I always give people is that I think that often the most rewarding careers can be found at the intersection of two passions. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are doctors and there are a lot of people who are, are lawyers and if you can find the intersects between those two interests, they can be really rich and rewarding work. and you're know, thinking about other creative careers in, in medicine. It's, it's just been an absolute joy to see other people who've found that intersects between their passions. So if you think about somebody like Cass Crock, who both you know works in paediatric anaesthesia, and she's a really passionate musician, and she's developed um, the Hush music series where she brings music into children's hospitals, or um, somebody like Dr. Nikki Mills, who's an extraordinary paediatric surgeon, but she's really passionate about breastfeeding, and she's just completed her PhD, looking at um, airway abnormalities and the way in which an improved understanding of anatomy can help babies with airway abnormalities to still be able to breastfeed. Um, and there are just lots of examples of, of people doing wonderfully rich and, and creative work who found that intersect between two of their passions.
0: It's both of these things that we're talking about, though, are incredibly time-consuming professions how you know I think you touched a little bit earlier on about how you sort of manage those different professional areas of your life how do you how do you manage your, your work life situation you mentioned obviously you're you've got kids that are growing up and about to, to be to be leaving home but as a parent how have you managed to sort of strike that balance yeah, so I think
1: you know you you go through different phases and stages in your life and um we had three children under the age of of three and a half um and having three babies was part of what influenced my decision to pursue my public health training first mm-hmm. because I knew that doing a non-clinical specialty would give me a lot of flexibility and a lot of control over my working hours at a time when my family really benefited from that. Um, and now that my children are older, it's, it's much easier for me to be doing more of the, the clinical work. Um, and, and I think that there is, you know, there's no one balance I think you're just constantly you know adapting and adjusting and, and refining um, and changing the way in which you you structure things as your your life and your career unfolds. and I've been surrounded by really fabulously supportive people um, you know my, my parents and my and my husband and, and my circle of friends, particularly when I was doing a lot of overseas travel were were immensely supportive about helping with the kids while I was getting off to conferences and so on. And I think, you know, I like to think that my career has been really enriching for my children as well. So um, when I was 41 weeks pregnant with our third child, I applied for a Harkness fellowship to Harvard and um, was successful in getting that fellowship. So we went to harvard with three children under the age of five and it was a a really (laughs) fabulous year for us as a family we traveled to 17 different states and you know my my husband took a year to be at home with the kids and it was one of the, the most wonderful rewarding years of my career
0: what advice uh, would you have for any doctors who might be interested in the kind of work that you that you've been doing, you know, and might want to explore health law as a professional option? I mean, one of the things that, on, on the flip side, one of the things too that they do need to be aware of in terms of the, the you know the, the time commitment, risk, sacrifice, and also I guess what have been the most um, rewarding things. You just mentioned some of those. <laughs> if we could sort of have a look at both sides. Hmm. You
1: know, one of the things my mum used to say to me when I was considering. Um, doing something is in 10 years time you'll be 10 years older whether you've done it or not <laughs> and I think particularly with you know with my law degree which which did take a long time because I was at medical school full-time and working as a health officer full-time throughout my law degree you know my law degree took me nine years to finish which is a really long time but I just keep thinking about my mum saying in 10 years time I'm going to be 10 years older and and I either will have done this very slow part time or not And, and so I think you know just doing a little bit of additional study can be a great way of dipping your toe into the water and seeing whether you really enjoy something and whether it lights you up and gives you the kind of passion that makes you want to pursue it further.
2: Marie, I feel exhausted hearing all these things <laughs> that you manage to fit into your day and I, I follow you on Twitter and I keep, I just, I'm in awe of how much time you have to, to respond to things and at the same time I know all the other balls that you're juggling. So, um, you know, just, you know, amazing work and and really meaningful work I think as well and you know when people ask me sometimes you know I I juggle a lot of balls do a lot of different things but for me my work is really my passion and I don't feel like it's a job and I I get the feeling that you're one of those people as well that you know every day it's um, you're excited about what you're going out to do and um, that's really inspiring for everybody else to watch but Absolutely lovely. Yeah, thank to you. <laughs> Just
1: tell I, I certainly find a lot of um, you know, a lot of purpose and joy in my work and work with some really wonderful people who I you know, look forward to seeing when I come to work each day.
2: Yeah, you really are the epitome of a creative career. So we've been very lucky to <laughs> to get the chance to speak to you today because um, I think um, yes, you've definitely found that intersection and you you know, you've done some great things with both both sort of degrees that you've had and now all these fellowships you're accumulating um but um yeah so i you know i want to say thank you for for giving us the time today and and andrew for letting me be co-host oh, that's um, all right
0: thank you. i was gonna i couldn't have said, said it better in, in summing up um being able to hear, hear marie's perspectives and experience has been it's been a real um privilege and i'm, I'm hoping that Um, that that there's been a lot of stuff that that some of our listeners will be able to get out of it um, as well. So, look, thank you so much, Marie, for your time today and also Amandeep. I know you're both very, very busy doctors. I will let you get back to to, to your your, um, various uh, plates that you need to keep spinning.
2: Thank you both. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
0: bye. Huge, huge thank you to Marie Bismarck and, of course, to Amandeep Hansra for both being available for this chat. It's hard enough usually finding a gap in one doctor's schedule to sit down for an interview like this. So to be able to get things aligned, to have Amandeep bring her own professional insights and perspectives into the discussion was really wonderful and hopefully um, something we might be able to do again in the future if we can swing it. Before I go, another quick reminder to head over to the CCIM homepage to uh, register for the CCIM 2020 conference in December and join up as a member secure your member benefits. You can read more about what those packages include at creativecareersinmedicine.com. This has been an Embrace Creative Production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back with more interviews and episodes very soon.